Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? You always tell when people from New York respond to that question. How are you doing? I have not yet heard the appropriate response. How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? You guys never heard that? I love it. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You doing good? Are you really doing good? You know, we have a pretty uh, stout inability to tell how we're really doing. A lot of times we need help. I mean, we say fine and how are you doing, but do we really know? Do we, ha- do we have the tools, the capacity to, uh, to, to understand that? Several years ago, I was playing golf with my oldest son, Andrew, who's a little guy at the time. And uh, golf's something that we love to do together. It provides opportunity to just unwind. And as they were growing up, when they're little fellows, they would play three, four holes, and then they would lose interest, or I would, and uh, we'd be done. But this was a pretty significant day because it was going to be the day of his first 18 holes of golf. And that's a big deal because he'd been playing nine holes for a while, but now we were going to do 18. And we had dinner set up as a family after to celebrate this because golf's been a, a big deal to me o- over the years. And so we're out, we r- did a cart because we didn't want to walk for 18, long way to go. And at, at our club, the, the, the 13th hole is a par three and the green is on a rise, a little hill, a little knoll of a hill. So it's on the top, this little plateau of a hill. And once you're done with that par three, you go down the hill and cross a street because there's some residences around. So this is a residential street. You cross that street to the 14th tee, which is a par five that's down lower. And so we finish the 13th hole, we're coming, we, we come down the cart path, cross the street, uh, we park right beside the 14th tee. Now he was, because of his age, he was teeing up way up front, but I was teeing up in the back. And so I'm up on the tee, the tee box, there's a, maybe 10 yards or so of, of, of grass, and then there's the street down there. And I was waiting on the guys in the fairway in front of me to clear out so I could hit my tee shot. And I was turned around just looking at the mountains and I was sort of turned towards that green and I heard a click. Now golfers know this sound, it's not a good sound, especially when it's your golf ball that's making the sound. It's the click of a golf ball hitting the pavement. And that's never a good thing. It means you're either OB or your ball's gonna get damaged or you're gonna lose it, whatever. And I knew it's amazing how fast you think in those moments. I knew exactly what had just happened is that one of the golfers behind us was downwind. There's actually quite a bit of wind. And I thought, boy, he overclubbed. And the ball has bounced a couple of times, come off the green, and now it's just hit the pavement. And so when I, and all of that's going split second. So I hear the click and I turn because I want to watch where it went as a courtesy to just let them know because I figured that they'll come down here looking for that golf ball and be able to tell them where it went. So I turned to look and see where this ball was kind of trickling to and bouncing to. And it was amazing timing because I turned and as soon as I turned, I saw the golf ball and it was right here, just about an arm's length away from me. Uh, Fast enough for me to just turn just a tad and it, it caught me squarely in the mouth. Now, what I realized very painfully and instantaneously is that uh, I had 
made a mistake in my evaluation of the situation. They had not hit the, this shot and it was trickling down the hill. This guy had bladed or bladed a shot, meaning it, it scalded, it, 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 it had traveled way too far or he drastically overclubbed, hit too long of a shot. Bottom line, here's what had happened. He overshot the green, the rough right behind it, and that click that I heard was not as a result of it bouncing down the hill. That click was its first contact with earth since he hit it meaning velocity was quite high. It didn't, it was skimming, it skipped off of the surface. So when it hit my mouth, I was the second thing for it to hit after pavement. Therefore the velocity uh, was a lot more than just a little simple uh, kind of hello golf ball and it took me down. So Andrew, my son's in the car because he's waiting to go up front, he sees this happen and tells me about it later, I just went down. I mean, I, I don't know if I lost conscience, but I saw stars and I'm just laying there. And so he runs over and he said, Dad, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing? He wasn't doing too good. He, he looked at me, but I have, of course, said, oh, buddy, I'm fine. And I sat up and he turned ashen white. He said, Dad, you don't look so fine. And then I looked down, sorry, a little gross, blood is everywhere on the tee, on my shirt. And so I had my golf glove on, wiped, wiped it off a bit, and uh, the guys came down from the, uh, who had hit, the, hit, hit, you know, saying, hey, have you seen our golf ball? Uh, <laughs> I did see it. I got a good look at it. Uh, Here's my attorney's card. So, uh, no, I didn't do that. You take a risk doing, playing golf. And so we got back in, but this is his first 18 holes. We got to keep playing. So we play this par five and he's asking me every few seconds, it seemed, dad, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Andrew. You know, buddy, this is good. We'll, we'll make it through here. Dad, I don't think you're doing good. Oh yeah. So I had a golf towel. I'm wiping the blush, you know, nice and sanitary, I'm sure. Then they had, somebody had called the clubhouse and one of the pros came out and met us after the 14th green. We'd played that par five. He comes up and said, Matt, how are you doing? I said, fine. He said, you don't look so fine. I said, Keith, it'll be fine. Uh, About that time, two ladies were passing and members and he knew who they were. He said, whatever her name was, hey, Sue, uh, do either of you have a mirror? One of them said, yeah, yeah. So he reached in her golf bag. I don't know why I didn't reach in my golf bag because I carry a mirror as well, just kidding. And so she handed the mirror to him, and he handed the mirror to me, and he said, now tell me, how are you doing? And I looked, and I said, I don't think I'm doing so good. (laughs) I mean, it was a mess. My lip had swollen up, so we then, instead of finishing the round, headed to the emergency room where nine exterior stitches and four interior stitches later, uh, everything was taken care of. I needed a mirror to let me know how I was really doing. And 
Scripture so often does that for me, and today's no exception, especially in this passage we're going to look at today. We're in this series. If you're just joining us, we're taking a journey through the book of Philippians. Paul, the Apostle Paul, planted a church in a Roman colony called Philippi, about 800 miles away in what you and I know as Greece. At the, at the time he's writing it, he's in prison. Basically, he's under house arrest, most probably, but he's in chains 24-7, writing a letter to this church he planted to encourage them to seize the joy of the gospel. Joy is not necessarily a smile, but it's a deep inner sense that Jesus is enough. It can happen even with tears in your eyes. And in chapter three, there are two verses just about, that are very short statements that hit me just like a mirror. How are you doing? Are you mature? Am I mature? How's your maturity doing? Are, how are we doing in our walk with Christ? He's just given some amazing exhortations in the first part of chapter 3 about what walking with Jesus is not about. It's not about going through religious ritual. He then talks about what it is about. He's just had this powerful statement about, I want to press on and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. We're singing about his pursuit of us, his deep love for us, this love that goes beyond our, our, our ability to fully comprehend. We can apprehend it, but not comprehend it. He has pursued us, and Paul is saying, in response of his pursuit of me, I want to pursue him. I want to go after him. And Paul lifts up a mirror to me in verse 15 and 16. If you've got your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 16. If you don't have a, uh, your Bible with you, you can look on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, just let us know in the back. We'll give you one. Verse 15, Philippians 3. All of us then who are mature, get that, should. All right, so immediately he's saying, hey, if you're mature, this is what you should see in this mirror. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Take such a view of things, that's the first statement. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. That's the second aspect of this mirror that he mentions. And then thirdly, in verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. So he makes three statements about if you are mature. This should be happening. This is what I should see in the mirror. How are you doing? Let me take a look. And often what we see, I'm so grateful for grace because it provides a safety net in which we do the ebb and flow of our journey and, and the, 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 the successes and the screw-ups and the confusion and the, the advances all happen in an environment of grace. But bottom line, what we often see if we're honest in our look in this mirror is what Soren Kierkegaard refers to, the Danish philosopher who wrote long ago, there are in the end only two ways open to us to honestly and honorably make an admission of how far we are from the Christianity of the New Testament or to perform skillful tricks to conceal the true situation, which is what happens in a lot of religious environments. We conceal. We don't look at the mirror. We pretend. We make up superficial stuff that we abide by, but there's not a deep authenticity, a deep what the reformers would refer to as a, a fides viva, a living faith. Paul said, if you're mature, 
You'll be following along with me because I'm taking hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of me. I'm pursuing this. You guys watching the Olympics? I'm already addicted. It's two days in. I'm addicted. DVR is running constantly. I've got a feed in my ear right now. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But no, last night watching a 17-year-old kid from uh, just up the road from where, where we live uh, win, the, 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 win the gold medal for snowboarding and slope style. Uh, 17 years old. So fun. There's story after story that will be building on that. One of the stories I'm looking forward to following is Lindsey Vaughn. She's also a Colorado resident, uh, an amazing skier, best female skier in the world, 81 World Cup titles to her credit, but she's in pursuit of something. It's to be the best skier in the world, period, not just female skier. 86 is the number she's after, Ingmar Steinmark. Uh, I had 86 to his credit, it's a 29-year-old record. But here's what Lindsey Vaughn said in an interview. Her, her grandfather just died before the ski season. She's had some interviews you might have seen, but she says, this is what I want to do. I want to finish my career as the best skier ever, male or female, uh, as in I'm not going to stop, stop skiing until I reach that goal. That's my legacy. That's what people remember. I don't want to have to say the greatest female skier. I want to say the greatest skier. I've never been in this for second place. And the passion with which she is pursuing her goal. And I think of what Paul is saying, I want to take hold, I press on to take hold of this. This is just in the previous two verses. He says, I press on. Am, am I pressing on? Are you pressing on? Are we as a community pressing on to take hold of that for which we've been taken hold of? To pursue, are we pursuing that for which we've been pursued? It's not going to be easy. Lindsay Vaughn, look at, listen to just a, this is a short abbreviated list of what she's endured over the course of her career. She's had blown out and several of them, a shattered humerus, a broken ankle, dislocated vertebrae, a severed tendon in her hand, a failed marriage, a complicated relationship with her father, a public relationship with Tiger Woods, battle with depression. The list goes on and on, but she says, I'm still pursuing. You know what? Gold medal's great, but what Jesus has pursued you for and me, it's a lot more than the gold medal. Paul says, let's take hold of it together. And that taking hold, see, maturity is not a static uh, status. It's a dynamic journey, a process. It's active, it's not passive. So what's it look like? Looks like a number of things, but there are three. And those three statements give me three quick indications of is maturity happening? Am I becoming more mature? Let's look at them one at a time. Here's the first pursuit of maturity that Paul's talking about. Let's call it perspective. What's perspective look like? It's when I'm aligning my thinking with, with Christ's truth. My perspective should be more aligned with Christ's truth. I'm not saying religious dogma. I'm talking about his truth, his life-giving insight in all of the Word of God. 
Is my perspective changing or not? If it's not changing, if it's not becoming more like Christ's, I'm not maturing. Go back to the text. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Such a view, is, the Greek word there is from and it means to think. All of us who are mature should be thinking in this way. Thinking along the lines of what he's just talked about. He says, take such a view of things. What things is he referring to? What he's just said. It's kind of it's some of what we looked at last week. How are we to think and how do we not think? Thinking, we need to guard against thinking too highly. Remember these from last week? Thinking too highly of our present maturity level? Or thinking too lowly of our present purpose? Or thinking too much of our past track record? Or thinking too little of our future rewards? Paul says, hey, if we're mature, we'll be thinking these things. We'll be aligning the way that we approach it. You and I are living in a culture that is stuck in its addiction to amusement. Ah, muse, as you've heard me say over and over, muse, think, ah, negation of not thinking. The internet read a very interesting article this week about... Um, this guy said, what the internet has done is a lot of great stuff, but a lot of the addictions affiliated with the internet and with video games, et cetera, have created a permanent puberty, a permanent puberty of the mind, meaning our minds never get developed because we're not thinking. Paul says, if we're maturing, we're going to be thinking. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and his pleasing and his perfect will. Where does that happen? How, how do I gain his perspective, his truth? Jesus says, eat my word, it's the bread of your life. He says, my truth will set you free. Amazing how we've turned his truth into something that suffocates us in religious opinions instead of setting us free to God-glorifying humanity. Where do we get that perspective from? It's not a religious handbook. This is a manual for my humanity to the glory of God. And there's something very unique about this book. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Paul says, hey, if you're mature, is your perspective, you want to know if you're mature, how you doing? Is your perspective being shaped by the word of God, which might imply that I need to be reading it. Call me stupid and silly, but I think that's kind of what's involved. Gallup poll did a, a poll uh, six, seven years ago of church evangelicals. Said, we revere the word of God, but we just don't read it. So we think, hi, oh yeah, this is a great book. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, Bible. Want to go to a Bible-believing church? Absolutely. Do you read it? Hmm. My perspective is not going to change just because I'm going to a Bible-believing church. James chapter 1 talks about I need to read it and then digest it. He says, anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror 
and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So Paul is giving me this mirror of the word and I'm thinking, all right, is, is my thinking becoming more aligned with Christ's thinking or not? Am I engaged? When's the last book that I read that helped shape my worldview and thinking, understanding what is the gospel, devouring the word? And getting into the word in such a way that I look in the mirror and then make adjustments. Back during World War II, women entered the workforce for the first time in mass uh, because a lot of the men were over, overseas. And they turned all of the, any building they could find often into warehouses, production facilities. And there was one particular one up near New York. And I think it was a parachute. They were doing something with parachutes, but they had turned both floors of this warehouse into an assembly line and also the attic. This is long before any workplace health safety standards. There was one staircase leading up to this attic. And all the women were up there, they would work hard. And then at five o'clock, and the, it was, wasn't just one staircase, it was what you would expect in the 1940s of a rickety old steep staircase. It was not safe just for one person. You had this, this entire workforce rush to that side of the building at five o'clock at quitting time and they were just plunging down the stairs. And one of the supervisors said, this is dangerous. Somebody's gonna get hurt. Some, some, somebody's gonna trip. Everybody else is going to fall on top and uh, it'll be bad news. So they, they were trying to think, what do we do to get people to slow down? So they did the obvious thing. They put a sign up, said, please slow down. <laughs> Obviously that didn't help at all. These women rush down and are almost jumping down the stairs. And then one of the supervisors, a woman, she said, I don't know why I didn't think about this before. I think I've got the ticket. I think I, I know how to get the ladies to slow down. At the top of the stairs, she put a full-length mirror. And you had to see that before you turned to the right and went down the stairs. So she stood over to the side. She couldn't wait. And sure enough, it worked. The bell rang, quitting time, five o'clock. All these women rushed to that side, to, to the, stop of the top of the staircase, and then going, and then... <sighs> and they all slowed down before they went. That's what mirrors are supposed to do. It's not just saying, that's interesting. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said, wow, that's interesting? That, oh my goodness, that looks awful. They're having to look at that between my teeth, huh? No, I'm gonna pick it out. I'm sorry, it's getting gross. There isn't anything there, but we make adjustments. When I go to the Word of God, I, all of a sudden I start saying, I need to make adjustments in how I'm perceiving this. That's maturity. It's getting in and, and, and beginning to gain the perspective of Jesus, but be very careful. Does not mean that I get all the answers, which leads to the second pursuit of maturity that he's talking about. First one is perspective. How are you doing? Well, I'm gaining perspective. I'm aligning my thinking with Christ's truth. Awesome. Second pursuit is patience, in which we align our mystery with Christ's enoughness. You like mysteries? Everybody loves a mystery in a book or in a movie, but we don't like mystery in our lives. That's why puzzles, by the way, are so popular. I read an article in NPR. 
this, this week where this guy, the, the writer says, the reason puzzles are so popular is we have so few answers, so little closure. We do puzzles so that we can at least have a semblance of figuring something out. But life's not like that. Anybody here have a few puzzle pieces missing in your journey? Questions that are unanswered? The temptation, for me at least, is to equate maturity with getting the answers. That's not maturity. Do we gain answers? Of course, that's the truth of Jesus. But as we gain answers, we also begin to figure out more questions. Let me encourage those of you who are new in your faith. I got more questions now than I did when I trusted Jesus years ago. You say, well, how does that work? Well, somebody, the circumference of my knowledge will also determine the parameters of my ignorance, meaning this, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know, if I'm really knowing the right things. Tracking? And so the more we delve into the beauty of the truth of the Word of God, all of a sudden the more things we realize we don't know. Go back to the text, verse 15, Philippians 3. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. If on some point you think differently. In other words, you got some unanswered questions? Be patient. God will make it clear to you in due time, but don't be afraid of the questions. I've been in some religious circles where everybody is, and I'll, I'll meet people where they, they have to know an answer about everything, even if they're making it up in real time. Just act confident and that's not maturity. You go to a second grade classroom, you ever been in a second grade classroom? Ever seen a teacher ask second graders, uh, you got a question? Any questions? How many kids raise their hands? Hey, all. <laughs> How about 11th grade classroom? Any questions? Now, does that mean 11th graders have figured it out? Uh, some of them think they, they have, but same is true for all adults. It's just the older we get, the more uncomfortable we become asking questions. Sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's despair. And we want to be mature. We want to, 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 to walk with Christ and have a sense of maturity. That's not about gaining all the answers. Maturity is not knowing the answers, it's actually in a lot of ways becoming comfortable with the questions. Doesn't mean that we don't gain con. Yes, there is there's a veracity, there's a historicity, like the resurrection. I mean, they're solid. It's not just out here in all mystery, but from the foundation of the solidity of who Jesus is and what he did, and that he validated that through his resurrection, I then stand firmly with him, but I'm looking at an arena of questions where they're mysteries and I don't know the answer to them. And I need to embark into those questions, holding on to him. David White, he's a British poet. I love, love his writings. He's, he uh, moved to corporate America, he wrote a book called The Heart Aroused. 
And he talks about sticker shock. He says, we really want a vitality to who we are. But what we don't realize is for that vitality to come, we've got to embrace that which is uncomfortable. We've got to embrace the reality that we're not immune to difficulties and problems and questions. He says, we experience a form of internal sticker shock, that the price of our vitality is the sum of all our fears, that the price of our passion and commitment involves the shattering of deep personal illusions of immunity and safety. And so many of us feel like, okay, for me to be okay, I've got to be immune to difficulty and I've got to have all the answers. No, for me to be okay, I've got to be walking with Jesus. Jesus. And I walk with the Jesus who weeps with me in the midst of my questions. I'd like for you to memorize a Bible verse while you're here in church right now. You ready? I'll give it to you. John 11:35. Here we go. Jesus wept. You got it memorized? What's powerful about that is that This is when his, his friend Lazarus died. He was about to raise him from the dead. He still weeps. He weeps because he's engaging the brutality of the fallenness for which he came to die. Yeah, he raised Lazarus. But in the meantime, he weeps with him. Maturity, am I maturing? It looks like patience. When I say, I don't have the answers here, but I'm going to walk with you, Jesus, and I'll trust you. A friend of mine was driving her daughter to school this week. Stopped at a red light was actually the first car in line. She was, the, the light changed when the, the, the school bus in, in front of her was going underneath the light. So she stopped, but the school bus stopped just on the other side of, of the intersection, a single lane, and put on the flashers. And she watched as the bus driver got out. She thought that was unusual. The bus driver came around to the side and then opened a panel, hit a button, and a platform unfolded and began to rise up. You know what's happening. A young man in a wheelchair, they, she was helping out. It looked, to be, it looked like his dad was with him. And had to strap him in and unstrap him. And uh, my friend and her daughter were watching this happen and just admiring the patience of the bus driver and the love of the father. But while they're watching this, the light changes, goes to green, but can't go anywhere. Back to red. Green, can't go anywhere. She looks in her rearview mirror and traffic's accumulating. Line of cars. And the honking horns started. And the angry U-turns, where people are trying to screech their tires to make a point to Say, so this is ridiculous. The further back in the line it went, the more impatient people were because they didn't have a view of what was actually happening. Paul says, 
align your mystery with the answers. Sometimes you've got them right there and say, okay, this is what happens. But a lot of times, all you got is an awareness that Jesus has been enough, he is enough, and he will be enough. And we've got some team members right now that are grappling with that. A little, a little girl who's was just born is in the NICU unit, and you think this is not how it ought to be. A team member had a tragedy happen in her sister's family just last night. Maturity in those moments looks like patience because it's not acquiescence, and it's not everything's fine. It is not fine, but I'm trusting him that he who began a good work, he'll get us home. And maybe I can't see up at the front of the line in this particular instance. And that's the case often, but we know who's up there. And we know he's got this and that he's enough. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I and fully known. Do you equate maturity with answers? Do I? I was speaking in Austria this past fall. This girl came up to me. She's about 30. Great English, but German accent. She's from Germany. And I never met her before, and I didn't think, I didn't recognize her. She came up and said, I want you to know how much you angered me about eight or nine years ago. That's a nice introduction. <laughs> Thankfully, she said it with a little bit of a smile, so I didn't think she was going to pull out a weapon or anything. I said, really, uh, what do you mean? And she said, well, I was a student, I was a Bible student up in Sweden, and you came and gave a speech, is what she called it, up there. And you talked about us needing to learn to live with the tension between mystery and certainty as we walk with Christ. There, is a, there are aspects about which we can have great confidence, but it's from that confidence and it, it, that we embark into what we're talking about here of, of grappling with mystery, of unanswered questions and not letting those scare us away. And she says, I, wanted, I was in Bible school at the time because I wanted to get all the answers. And I didn't like what you were saying, but it changed me, and I want to thank you. When I was in college, I was trying to get all the answers. I was studying at a study center over in Switzerland called Labrie with a guy named Francis Schaeffer. It's an apologetics and defense of the gospel type thing. And about half of us were believers and half of us were unbelievers everybody investigating the truths of Christianity. And one of the highlights of every week was when Dr. Schaefer, who at that point in my journey, he was the smartest guy I had ever met. Brilliant. And some of you who've been around Christian circles for a while know that name. 
He would come in two nights a week, sit in the chapel on the hearth next to the roaring fire. This chapel is perched on the side of a mountain in the Swiss Alps. We're all huddled around sitting on, on the floor. He comes in, pours a cup of tea out of a pot that's in a little warmer there. And he would walk in, everything would go silent, and then he would say, questions. And then people could ask him anything. Fascinating. But there was this one guy I'd gotten to know a little bit. He was a Scandinavian philosophy student, also studied architecture. Uh, was there, but he was a skeptic, but he was an honestly seeking. He raised his hand. Schaefer looked at him. He said, question? And this guy said, yes, Dr. Schaefer, why God? People started snickering, laughing, which Schaefer was not at all happy with. He could exercise some temper and he said, silence. Everybody got silent. And once everything had settled back down, he then looked back at the young man, made eye contact to make sure he was now re-engaged with his question. And he said, I don't know. He paused, make sure the young man knew he had addressed his question. And then he turned to the rest of the room and said, next question. A week, 10 days later, that young man came to Christ. I was having dinner with him. I said, what was the tipping point? You've been here a couple of months. Now, what, what got you over the line to embrace? He said, Dr. Schaefer's, I don't know. When he said, I don't know, to my question, a lot of the religious people I'd met and the Christian people always tried to have all the answers, and I know this universe is bigger than our ability to provide all the answers. Isaiah 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our confidence is not in answers, but in a person who says, I'll get you home. In spite of you, in spite of the fall, how are you doing? Perspective will be growing, me aligning my thinking with Christ's truth. Patience will be growing where I'm aligning my mystery, my questions. I begin to find him in the questions, not just in the answers. Realizing he's enough. And here's the third one, and then we're going to continue this next week. Progress. How am I doing? Is there progress happening? Where I'm aligning my growth with Christ's intent. Go back to the text. He says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Let's keep going. Let's respond. 
That live up to, by the way, is a fascinating Greek word, stoichen, it means to live up to, means it, it's referring to being lined up in an army or a line of ships. It's a communal word. Let us together figure this out and make sure that we're understanding what we're about. And what we're about is not trying to figure out how to stare at somebody's head for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning when it's convenient. But we're realizing that the reason Christ gave his life is for me to grow deeper and go further. And as I said, we'll look at this more next week. But for now, take it as this. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So often in religious circles, we feel like Jesus' intent is an intent of way and or an intent of truth, meaning, hey, here are a couple of rules and here's a doctrinal statement. Is it that? Yes, but far more, it's also life. Jesus' intent, the reason he died on the cross is not just to enable you and me to have a religious experience every now and then. I told you I carried this nail back at, during Advent to remind me that the baby grew up why did he come to die? John 10.10, 10, he says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, which ironically describes a lot of religiosity. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life, have it to the full, to the glory of God. Denying your definitions in terms of perspective and embracing mine. Vernon and the team and I listened to a song a few weeks ago that came out a while back about the biography of a nail. It's a nail that found its way into Christ's flesh. And this nail is trying to figure out its purpose. And finally it dawns on this nail that its purpose is to take the life of a guiltless man. And as he sings this song, I, I want you to reflect on the reason that he died. And it was far more than just making us a religious institution. He died to launch us into a new way of being human to the glory of God and to give us life and to restore us, to enable us to progress and to understand looking in a mirror that we're not home yet but we're at a different place than we were last month. And we'll be in a different place in another month. Let me pray. And then I wanna give you just a few moments to think through the implications. Jesus died for you for far more than we realize. Lord Jesus, would you speak to my friend, speak to me. Speak grace, speak truth, speak love, speak hope. Speak patience, speak perspective, speak progress into our lives, understanding that you died for a purpose. Yes, it was for our forgiveness. Yes, it was for our assurance of heaven, but it was for far more. And may we have the courage to follow you and progress according to what your intent for us is as a community as well as individuals.